I like that last, those last couple lines. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. If you can give an answer to why you think you deserve what he did, then you don't understand grace, right? That's grace. Can't explain it. It's what makes it amazing. We do not deserve it. And Father, we're here this morning and I, we just worship you. Oh, how we love you. Your love for us is incredible. Can't explain it. We don't deserve it. And yet, we say along with that blind man that you healed when you were here on the earth. When they came and they questioned him and they wanted to know, you know how did this happen? How, did, how is it that you were born blind but you now? He's like, I, I don't know. But one thing I know. I once was blind, and now I see. That's how we feel this morning, Lord. It's how I feel. It's like, I we can't explain it. But it is true. And you, you have caused us to see. You have caused us to love you. And we just say that to you this morning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we love you. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a seat. Please grab your Bibles. <laughs> Go to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the last half of this chapter. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I feel like I've got a lot to say this morning. Um, and so I'm going to jump right in and read it, and we're going to get to it. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we do ask, as we look at this text this morning, that you would open the eyes of our heart again to see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this week and next, we kind of are in a transition in the book of Ephesians, um, Ephesians breaks down very nicely, it's six chapters, the first half, the first three chapters are more doctrinal oriented, and the last four are more practical, or if you will, the first three chapters are more vertical, and the last three chapters are more horizontal. And here, as I'm sure you've noticed reading it this past week, and as I just read it again here, 
a few seconds ago, is that this is a prayer. It's a prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, but he's also praying for the church throughout all time, which is why he ends the prayer with, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. We are part of that. Um, And kind of the big idea or the way I want to get into this this morning is just by this simple observation is that the way that we pray for those we love reveals our kind of hopes and dreams for their lives, right? So think about your kids if you've got kids. How do you pray for your kids? The things that you pray for your kids, for your children, reveals the hopes that you have for them. You pray that they would marry a godly spouse. You pray that they would uh, be healthy. You pray that they would follow Jesus, right? Um, The way that we pray for those that we love reveals our hopes and dreams for their lives. And here Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, but he's also praying for the church throughout history. And so it reveals kind of Paul's heart, kind of his vision, his hopes and dreams for the church, um, and it also reveals God's heart for the church. And so the, the primary just implication of that uh, at first glance is just simply this, is that Paul's heart for the church is God's heart for the church, and that should be our heart for the church. So the vision that Paul has here, or that's kind of revealed um, in this prayer, should also be our vision for what the way, the way that we should be praying for ourselves, the way that we should be praying for the church at large, um, but primarily on this vertical plane. So over the next couple of weeks, um, we'll be looking at some more of the horizontal things, the person-to-person and people-to-people relationships that uh, God has in mind in terms of his vision for his church. Um, but here, it's, it's vertical. What, what does God want for us as a church? I think it's revealed beautifully in this prayer. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And we'll get into it by asking three questions, okay, that are just kind of observation type questions, and we'll kind of unpack them as we go. But I want to look at, first of all, to whom Paul prays, and then for what he prays, and then how he prays. To whom he prays, for what he prays, and how he prays. And again, as we unpack those questions, um, I believe we're going to kind of see God's heart for the church and I pray that it will be our heart as well and also shape the way that we pray. First of all, to whom he prays. He prays to the Father. To the Father. It says, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Addressing God as Father I've found as a pastor, as I've talked with a lot of people, can be, can be interesting because our relationships with our earthly fathers are many times complicated. Yeah? They're many times complicated. And I say that as a father of four boys, as most of you know, and I'm not a perfect dad. I want to be, but I'm not. And so many times when we come to God as Father, our relationship with our earthly father plays into it. But what Paul says here, this idea when he says, I bow my knees before the Father, and then where he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's kind of a little bit of a tricky phrase, but here's the gist of what he's, he's getting at. He's saying that God is the truest father 
that there is. Or to say it another way, what, what Jesus did not do when he taught us to pray to the Father, what Paul is not doing as he teaches us to pray to the Father, he's not, he's not stealing this metaphor that we have of an earthly father and just trying to overlay it on God to like get us to, I don't know, be more, so that God will be more relatable or more accessible. Okay? We are not the substance and then he's the shadow. He is the substance, we're the shadow. Does that make sense? God is Father. He is the truest of fathers. That's why no matter what our relationship with our earthly dads is like, when something's, when something's off, when, when our earthly fathers are not all that they should be, and there's not a perfect father in this room, myself included, amen? There's not. But when our earthly fathers are not all that they should be, we know that they're not being all that they should be, because this idea of God as our heavenly Father is, is, is real. And we know that there's something better. That we're the shadow, that he's the substance. And in Paul's vision for the church here as, as he prays, he, he wants the church to understand that they're coming before their heavenly Father. And he's perfect, guys. He's perfect, He's everything that you could ever want a father to be. He's perfect in every way. And I think that many times when we gather as a church, we don't first and foremost gather remembering that what we're doing is we're coming collectively. As brothers and sisters, we're coming to a good, good father. Somebody should make a Christian song out of that. Good, good father. Christian jokes, I tell you, they're always low-hanging fruit. Anyway, it's a good, good father. Um, Paul envisions a church that gathers not as a group of philosophers in a lecture hall at their alma mater, but he envisions a church that is gathering around their father's table as brothers and sisters. Let me say that again. When we gather, we're not gathering as a group of philosophers in the lecture hall of our alma mater, but as a family of brothers and sisters at our Father's table. Because here's the deal. If you're part of the church, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you didn't get here by filling out an, ap- by filling out an application and subsequently getting accepted into some sort of special society. That's not what this is. You got adopted into a family, and it was all grace. It was all grace. Me and, me and the interns were kind of joking this past week about, have you, ever, have you ever, I don't do this a lot, I don't think I've ever done this, I'm about to do it, but have you ever been in those churches where the, the, the pastor goes, look, at, look to the person on your right, and say, blah, 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 and then look to, yeah, you know what I mean, anyway. So I want you to look to the person on your right, or look to the person on your left, or look to the person beside you. Yeah, and so everybody looked away from everybody. Anyway, see, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this at all. That's why I don't do it. But just look around is the point. Brothers and sisters adopted into the same family by grace. Not a one of us deserved it. Not a one of us. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Christ Jesus, according to the good intention, the pleasure of his will. From chapter one. We come before our Father, and I also like here this idea of Paul bowing the knees before the Father. It is a beautiful mingling of both reverence and relationship, isn't it? It seems that people many times tend to fall into one of two ditches on either side of the road. Is that one, they have this reverence where they feel like God can't be Father and he's unapproachable because God is holy, or on the other hand, they just kind of treat God like, you know, he's their boy and he's just like giving them a fist bump, you know, they're just like giving him a fist bump all the time. And it's, it's, it's not that. It, it's a mingling of both reverence and relationship. When we gather together as brothers and sisters, um, we should be filled with awe and yet totally unashamed at the access that we have to our heavenly Father. Um, Prayer is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. We, we pray here on Sunday mornings from 8.30 to 9.30, and I, I tell you what, I'm so thankful um, just for just having a group of people that is committed to coming together in prayer every week. In fact, I, I mentioned this morning in prayer that last night I was sitting at home uh, at the kitchen table just kind of looking over my notes for this morning. And as I was sitting there, I just, I just thought to myself, man, I can't wait for prayer tomorrow morning. But the reason I can't wait for it is this, is because, guys, God is so faithful. He is so faithful to meet us there in a special way every week, just like I believe he's faithful to meet us here. Man, when we, when we come to prayer, we are coming before our Father, and we have total access in boldness with confidence. Remember that from last week? Verse 12, boldness and access with confidence to our Heavenly Father. And this is the first thing that I think Paul envisions for the church, is that we're coming before him as brothers and sisters to our Father's table, knowing that he hears us. Secondly, asking the question, for what Paul prays? He prays mainly for one thing, but in two different ways. His prayer here, the substance of his prayer, this is so interesting, is for strength. Paul envisions a church that is strong, but we need to get down to what that strength means because when I say strength, we all have this idea that comes to mind about like, what we think strong is as a Christian. But Paul's going to unpack some of this for us. But if you look in verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, so this isn't hard for him, like he's overly abundant in all that he does, okay, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, And then he's going to say the same thing down in verse 18, but it's a different type of strength. He says that you may have strength to comprehend. So there's two different types of strength here that are the substance of what Paul is praying for. And again, Paul envisions a strong church, and I want to look at each one of these different strengths that he's speaking of. First of all, as I just said, that we would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being, the idea of our soul of our heart. He's going to say in verse beginning of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, inner being and hearts. Soul and our heart, our our inner man. 
Paul is concerned about the soul of the church. And I would just say this, we, we care, generally speaking, we care so little about our souls. I mean, we want to know that we're going to be safe when we die and go to heaven someday. But day in and day out, we care very, very little about our souls. We do not pray the way that we should for the condition of our own soul. But praise God that Paul, that Paul did. Paul knew what was really important in the church, that their souls would be healthy. And he says, I pray that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. When is the last time you prayed for your soul like that? Many times we go around weak and not walking in the power that God has for us. And then, you, and then when you look at that, the way that we live many times, and then you think about how little we pray for the condition of our soul, it's no wonder. We don't think about our soul. We don't pray for our soul. But Paul is concerned about the church's soul. You know, this morning, um, as we sit here right now, every one of us has pain of some sort in our soul. There's a pain of some sort. And not just one thing, multiple things. Pain from, from trauma, from hurt, from being wronged. Sometimes pain in our soul because of our regret, because of things that we've done. Uh, sin has jacked us up pretty good in our soul. But Jesus came to heal all that and to save us from it. And I know this is kind of a Captain Obvious type statement, but let's not forget that there's a reason why when he saved us, he didn't just immediately take us into glory or just make us perfect here now in this life. Is that God has purposes in the process of sanctification. That he has purposes in this time here on earth where yes, we know him, yes, we are saved, but we are still being redeemed. We are still being um, formed from glory to glory to ever increasing glory, the Bible says, into the image of Jesus. And one of the things that God wants to use in our lives to make us more like Christ is that we would begin to pray prayers like Paul prays here for ourselves and for the church. That Jesus Christ, that we would know him as our healer, the healer of our souls. And there's an interesting connection here that this really... This is probably the place where it just, I was just meditating on this over and over throughout the week. Because notice here, like, why is Paul praying this? Or what does he intend? He says, it would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. So that, so that, so for this purpose, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that begs the question, what does this, what does this mean? What's the connection with being strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. First of all, we've got to unpack this word dwell here because as we've already read in Ephesians chapter 1, having believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That the, at the moment of salvation, the thing that saved you, the thing that changed you is that the Holy Spirit came into your life. 
And so the Holy Spirit is living in every single person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But what Paul's speaking of here when he says that I pray that the Spirit would now strengthen you in greater and greater measure so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The the word for dwell here is literally the idea of Christ making himself at home in our lives. Okay? Hannah and I, (laughs) over the course of our almost 20 years of marriage, have lived in eight different houses. Okay? Okay? Several of those we've owned, several of those we've rented, but we've lived in eight different places. And by the grace of God, um, Hannah has this amazing ability to make every house feel like a home. But every house that we initially moved into did not right away feel like a home. She had to put her touch on it and make it feel like a home. You following me? And in the same way, Christ comes into our lives and he wants to begin to redecorate, remodel, rearrange, paint the walls, turn it into what he wants it to be. And what's been a helpful illustration to me is that just like it is with my wife when she says we need to do something, I have learned over 20 years to just say, okay, and just step away. Now she's gracious because I'll go, what do you think about this, sweetie? And she just goes, no, no. And I've come after 20 years to realize I don't actually know what I'm talking about. I'm not good at interior decorating. Paint the walls green, camouflage green, hunter green. That would be my move in everything. In the same way, guys, God, Christ, Christ, he's in your life, but he wants to make himself at home. He wants to dwell there. But again, I still haven't answered this question. Why, though, does Paul pray that we be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ can come in and do this? Here's why Paul is praying. Remember, he's praying to God for God to do this in their life. The reason he's praying for it is because we resist it. We resist allowing Jesus to come into every area of our soul and rearrange whatever he wants. I don't want to mix metaphors, but I think it is the same idea. In Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, Jesus speaking to this church by the Apostle John says, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold, would that you were <clears throat> either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. <clears throat> so be zealous and repent. Now listen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That verse is not speaking of salvation. That verse is being spoken to the church. That not only is Christ not allowed to come in and to dwell, but he's actually on the outside. Saying, you got to let me in? 
I tell you what, we need this prayer for our souls, for our church. That God would, by his strength, give us power through his spirit in our inner being so that we would learn to surrender. Surrender control wholeheartedly to Christ. If I can go down this path a little bit farther here too, in the context of what Paul's been talking about in Ephesians, I think there's two primary things that are worth mentioning in terms of why we don't surrender control. The two things that Paul's been talking about are one, this, this oneness, this unity that Christ came to bring between Jew and Gentile. Okay? Now the whole Jew-Gentile thing, we don't really grasp just how much of a division that was uh, before Christ came, and that's one of the reasons he came was to reconcile that. But if, if I could just put it in, in layman's terms for a second, the idea is this, there's people that are really, really, really not like you, right? And you're really, really, really not like many other people, okay? That's one thing that he's been talking about. The other thing is that there have been unexpected and unwanted circumstances, we talked about this a little bit last week, that Paul was sitting in prison. The Ephesian church was somewhat confused as to why Paul was sitting in prison. Well, here's, here's the deal. When there are people that are really, really not like me, don't see things the way that I necessarily see them in the church, and when there are unexpected and unwanted circumstances, do you know what I try to do more than anything else? I try to control that situation. Because I don't want somebody who's not like me to be in control. And so I'm going to step in and I'm going to take this bull by the horns and I'm going to steer it where I want because I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if they're in charge. Same way when things go bad in my life, when I experience unexpected and unwanted circumstances. I try to jump in and take control. And I think this is the heart of what Paul was getting to in this prayer and why he's praying it for the church is because throughout history where the church has gone astray, it's been where men have tried to take control from Jesus. And that never ends well. It is his church, folks. It's his church. And so we need strength by the Spirit to be able to surrender control to Christ that he may be able to come in and rearrange, remodel, redecorate whatever it is that he wants to do. Because he knows what he's doing. Just like he knew what he was doing when he had Paul go to jail. That wasn't by mistake. It was all part of his glorious plan. And Paul was learning to lean into that, to understand it. The second prayer for strength here, not only a strength to surrender and give Christ control, but also a strength to be able to comprehend so he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's saying like, you know that you know this love. You're saved. The Holy Spirit's in you. Like you, you, you know this love. But then he says, I pray that you may have strength to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay? So the second request for strength here is a strength to be able to comprehend the love of Christ. And that idea of the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, it's this idea of all these dimensions of God's love. All the dimensions of his love. Again, Romans 5, at salvation, we've experienced this love of Christ in measure, and it's good and it's life-changing, but there's more. That's why Paul's asking for it. And there's always more. 
The love of God is unsearchable. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Okay? We have experienced this love in some measure, but Paul is saying in this verse that there is more of God's love to comprehend. And Paul envisions a church that when they gather at their father's table, they are coming and they are wanting to surrender control to Christ, but they are also wanting to just be amazed again and again and again and again at his love. Because we can never exhaust it. We will never come to the end of it. And listen, this love that he's talking about, I mean, listen to the way Paul prays. Listen to, what he, listen to what he says. It doesn't even really make sense unless you understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Huh? How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Because it's by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is given in our lives to make the love of God real. Now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on something really hard here for a second, because many of us, not all of us, are from several different backgrounds and theological traditions in this church, but many of us have grown up in traditions where if, if you could go back to those two ditches that I was talking about earlier, about either being too flippant with God and just treating him as your homeboy, or, or that he's too holy that you can't approach him as father, many of us come from that second ditch. And many of us think that the love of God is all just about knowing facts and information, and it's not. It is about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, making the love of God known to you in a way that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to Him. And we, listen, you, you know we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. I'm for theology. I'm for using big theological terms to try to explain our huge, massive, uncomprehendable God. I'm for that. But it's not just, about, it's not just a mental exercise, folks. And many times we come and we gather and we speak about the love of Christ and we see somebody raising their hands or really getting after it or we see somebody, you know, maybe on their knees or, or, or weeping and, we, and, and in, internally, although we probably wouldn't say this, but internally what we're kind of, you just love God with your mind, dummy. No, you love him with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, all of it. Every part of who you are is how we worship him. And I'm not cutting the mind out of it but there's more to it, folks, than just mental assent about big theological terms. And if those big theological terms are not fuel for you to throw into the furnace of your soul so that you are living a life of white, hot worship to God, then you're in danger of becoming a Pharisee. It's about worship. It's about knowing God through the Holy Spirit. And I understand because there's excesses in the ditch on the other side of the road. And, we're af and we tend to be afraid. We tend to be afraid of experientialism or fanaticism or these excesses that we've seen in others. But I'm telling you right now, folks, we don't have to choose between the two. There is a fullness of the Holy Spirit that God intends for us to experience as his children 
And it is when we gather each and every week, and not just every week, but every day, to know the fullness of the love of Christ. Where we delight in Him. Where we enjoy Him. Let me give you another illustration. The sun, the star in the universe, not the sun, the third, second person of the Trinity, but the sun the, that our earth, solar system revolve around. Um, it's the large, largest object in our universe. It holds 99.8% of the solar system's mass. It is roughly 109 times the diameter of the sun. About one million Earths could fit into the sun. The surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, um, while the core of the sun reaches more than 27 million degrees. Uh, scientists say that you would need to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second to match the energy produced by the sun. Okay? Yeah, impressive. There's a difference between knowing the sun like that and simply stepping outside on a cloudless spring day and, and enjoying the warmth that it provides. Amen? Many of us are very good at spouting off facts like I just spouted off to you about the sun. We do that with God's love. It's unending. It's never ceasing. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. But we have a really hard time just stepping outside and just enjoying its warmth. I want both for us. Amen? God wants both for us. Yes, it's true. Because the sun is, the surface of the sun is burning at 10 million degrees, we feel it thousands and thousands of miles away. But God intends for you to enjoy it. He intends for you to delight in it. And Jesus is not glorified. He is not glorified in a church that simply recites facts about him. He's glorified in a church that delights in him. Going back to that analogy I was given a little bit earlier about Christ coming into our hearts and dwelling there, making himself at home and, and rearranging whatever it is that he wants to rearrange. If I can just tease that out a little bit more with what I believe Paul's saying here. If our soul is a house... And if Christ is Lord of that house and free to dwell, rearrange, remodel, whatever he wishes, then know for certain that what he wants to do is fill every square inch of the soul of your house with his love. And he is committed to this process, folks. He's committed to it. Praise God he's committed to it. He is committed to filling every square inch of your soul with his love. Until one day, 1 John 3, you know, he says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. That we, that we 
should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus said in John chapter 15, the night that he was going to, just a few hours, he was going to be arrested. He said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in his love. It's not a one-time thing that you learn. It's a daily, moment-by-moment experience of trusting his promises, believing and asking the Holy Spirit to bring about the knowledge of his love in your love, in your life, this knowledge that this this knowing that surpasses knowledge, as Paul says here, that we might be filled to all the fullness of God. Paul envisions a church that is strong by the Spirit and surrendering control to Christ, and so in their weakness, they are strong. He envisions a church that is continuously amazed by God's love every time they gather at their Father's table. And finally, answering the question, in terms of how he prays, so again, to whom he prays, for what he prays, and now how he prays. He envisions a church that prays with confidence. With confidence. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. If I ask Joe to get something done for me, if I ask Joe to come over to my house, diamond in the rough construction, and remodel something in my house. And I say, Joe, are you going to get this done for me? And Joe says, Eric, I'm going to do far more abundantly than all that you could ever ask or think. There's no reason for me to be worried, right? He's going to get it done if I trust Joe. I mean, Joe might be overstating it a little bit in that context, but... Like if somebody, like far more abundantly than all we ask or think, like this is why I'm saying Paul wants, he envisions a church that, that is filled with confidence in all that we do in our prayers. Our God is not up there just like, oh, I got, okay, I got a little bit left. Bloop, sprinkle it out on him there. It's according, verse 16, to the riches of his glory. That he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Verse 20, according to the power that is at work within us. I, you know, it is incredible to me how much man just wants to make it about man or how much we just like to make it about us. I have heard preachers take the second part of verse 20 here where it says according to the power at work within us and, and then press this verse to their listeners in some sort of an exhortation like, see, you, you got to do something. It's, it's according to the power that's at work within you. What's the power he's just been talking about? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that he's asking God for that he's asking God to do. Paul would have no confidence if it depended on us, but it doesn't ultimately depend on us. It depends on God. That's why we keep our eyes on him. That's why we petition him. It's why we pray to him. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And then he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. This is a doxology. It's a, these last couple of verses are, 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 are a declaration. It's like a benediction. 
Paul had been praying. He's praying to God for them. But here, he's not just praying. He's declaring what will be true. And what will be true is that Jesus Christ will glorify his name through the church for all generations. We are 2,000 years into this deal. I don't know how much longer we've got. Could be another 2,000 years. I don't know. Maybe not. But for at least 2,000 years, godless governments, evil dictators, and incurable diseases have not been able to stop the church. Amen? And it never will. Because to him will be the glory in the church throughout all generations. And we had better start living like it. With confidence in who he is and what he said he's going to do. And what he said he's going to do is he's going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so when I, I plead with you, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, and again, this, what we do on Sunday mornings, this, this isn't just church, like singing a few songs and hearing the word proclaimed. This is part of what the church does. But you are the church. We are the church. We are his bride, his body, his family, as we talked about last week. But when we gather, I, I, I plead with you not just to come with a consumeristic mindset. I want you to come, and I want you to be ready, and I, I want you to receive. You don't have to apologize for that. I want to do my best with what God has called me to do, and by his word, to feed you, to feed your soul every week. And I hope that you leave encouraged. You don't have to be ashamed about receiving, but for folks, there's more to it than just receiving, just consuming that he has called us to be his hands and his feet, to live on mission, to love one another in, makes, in a way that makes the world wonder, that we lay down our lives for one another. Jesus said that all people are going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. Why do we love each other in that way? Because we've been loved by him in that way. Because we've been loved by him in a way that is inexplainable, that we don't deserve it. And so we show kindness to people, not just within the church, but even outside of the church. We love and bless even our enemies. Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what? you're no different than the tax collectors and sinners. This love that we are to experience, that Christ wants to bring into every inch of our soul, that the Spirit wants to make a reality in our life, once this love is in us in increasing measure over and over again, then it comes out of us. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose of man? Their answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper, in the introduction to his book, Desiring God, I believe rightly points out that what they mean there are not two things but one thing because they don't say what are the chief ends of man ends plural but what is the chief end of man and then they answer it to glorify God and enjoy him forever and John Piper argues that really how it could be better stated is that we glorify God by 
enjoying him forever. By enjoying him forever. And I think this is exactly what Paul's praying for here in Ephesians chapter 3. He's praying that this church and our church would know the love of God, would be so satisfied in the love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that God could not help but get glory from our lives because we are constantly standing out just enjoying the warmth of his love. That's what he wants for us, folks. It's what he wants for your soul. If your soul is hurting this morning, you have pain in your soul. I just want to tell you, Jesus is your healer. Jesus is your healer. We're for, we are for, we are for counseling. We're for, we're for sharing with others. We're for sharing in a group, and you know, doing whatever you got to do to try to help navigate what's going on in your soul. But no matter what kind of practical means like that we employ, in the end, Jesus is your healer, and He wants to pour out His love in a fresh and new way into your soul, and bring healing and wholeness. And he does the, wants to do this not, just be, not because you deserve it, but just because he's gracious. It is according to the riches of his glory that he has this for you this morning. And I just want to say to some of you this morning that you may have stopped believing that for your soul. Your soul may, have, may be in so much pain and it feels like it's been in pain for so long that you think that it's not possible. And I just want to speak to you specifically for just a second this morning and tell you that that's a lie. Jesus Christ is good and he loves you. And he wants to pour out his love into your soul. Would you guys just bow your heads with me as we close? When you pray, are you praying to your Father? Are you trusting Jesus to be the healer of your soul? Does, God love just, does God's love just seem like a statistic, like a fact, like information? Or does it seem like the warmth of the sun? This is God's vision for his church. That we gather around our Father's table, that we experience the Spirit's power, that we surrender control to the Son. And that we would simply glorify him by enjoying him forever. So, Father, I just pray this morning for us as a church and for the church around the world. I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would strengthen us with your power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Jesus, come have your way. And I pray that you would give us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and that we would know your love that surpasses knowledge, Lord, and that you would be glorified in us 
and in your people around the world throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You guys stand with me and let's sing to him.